Welcome to Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Today is Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. Today we're presenting the chapter-by-chapter preview of Peter Holland's new book, Old School Grit. It's said that if there's a will, there's a way. Old School Grit is a book that shows the path. To be precise, the path that some of history's greatest figures have taken. You'll learn from them, hear about their struggles, and see the massive amounts of self-discipline, willpower, and general tenacity that they used to become worthy of history books. If King Leonidas could repel 100,000 Persians, you can exercise more and eat more healthily. Chapter 1. Ernest Shackleton and His Crew, An Inspiring Story of Strength and Survival Few stories of resilience are as amazing as that of the British Endurance Expedition, launched in 1914. The mission was to cross the Antarctic on foot, but sadly this lofty goal was never to be achieved. Instead, the Endurance mission took a completely different shape. The ship, aptly named Endurance, got trapped in thick sheet ice on its journey out. The crew of Endurance was stranded for months in the ice as they battled abject cold, hunger, desperation, and even insanity. The expedition leader, Ernest Shackleton, first led his men to abandon the trapped ship to the safety of nearby Elephant Island, and after that, he bravely left his crew to seek help. Because of his continued courage and discipline, he managed to save that crew, even though everything else was lost. The ship lay at the bottom of the ocean for 107 years before it was rediscovered recently, in March 2022. As the ghost of this vessel was brought back to the surface, historians were again reminded of Ernest Shackleton and his crew. But who was Shackleton, and what exactly happened on the expedition? There were actually two ships— one called the Ross Sea Party, on the ship Aurora that would drop supplies for the other, the Endurance. On this ship were 69 dogs, a tomcat, 27 men, and one ship stowaway, who was later put to work as a steward. The expedition leader was Shackleton, who saw the voyage as a way to make a name for himself by establishing a base on the Weddell Sea Coast. Setting out in August, the ship was trapped in thick sheet ice in the Wendell Sea by December that year, and there was nothing the crew could do to free her. Though they could move the vessel for a little while, eventually the ice surrounded them so they could not budge either forward or backward. As the ice creaked and shifted, it took the ship with it, slowly drifting the men off course and crushing the hull bit by bit. They'd been within only a day's reach of their destination, but with every day spent trapped, they drifted further away. For ten long months, the crew sat on the trapped ship, waiting out the winter. One of the ship's doctors, Alexander Macklin, later wrote that Shackleton did not rage at all or show outwardly the slightest sign of disappointment. He told us, simply and calmly, that we must winter in the pack explained its dangers and possibilities, 
never lost his optimism and prepared for winter. For months, Shackleton tried to lead his men through the perilous Antarctic ice packs on dwindling provisions and scant morale. But he could not ignore the writing on the wall. They were going nowhere and running out of provisions. As seasoned sailors know, what the ice gets, the ice keeps. Waiting patiently was a recipe for certain death. Shackleton eventually ordered the crew to abandon ship, and in good time, too, since it sank shortly afterwards, around 28 days later. The team escaped with their lives on just three lifeboats. They made difficult decisions about which of the barest essentials to take, discarding everything else. Most of the smaller dogs and the cat were shot, and the rest of their possessions were left behind to go down with the ship. It was gut-wrenching, but the ordeal was just getting started. Chapter 2. Beethoven. Not even deafness was an excuse. Most people know that the famous classical composer Ludwig von Beethoven was deaf. But have you ever stopped to consider what an incredible struggle this must have been? Perhaps we imagine that Beethoven was simply a genius. We see the end of his life centuries later, and the day-to-day -day details are lost to us. Imagine for a second what it must have been like to sit at a piano and play, but without being able to detect a single sound from it in front of a large and expectant crowd. Imagine, too, you live in a time before hearing aids and where there's very little understanding of what it means to be deaf. Today, Beethoven is lauded as the brilliant musician he certainly was, but somewhat lost to history is the incredible resilience and strength it took to build that legacy. Let's start at the beginning. Beethoven wasn't born deaf. He began to lose his hearing in his 20s, and by this time, he was fortunately already a respected musician and composer. Despite the gradual loss of his sense of hearing, he continued to perform, which in those days was expected of composers. In fact, Beethoven hid his disability for a time, with a degree of success, until it slowly became obvious what was happening. Composer Louis Spohr watched Beethoven perform in 1814 and sadly claimed the music was unintelligible. We cannot imagine how it must have felt for a man so accustomed to living in a world of sound to find himself slowly slipping into a realm of involuntary silence. By the time he was 45, Beethoven's hearing was completely gone, and there was no point in trying to perform publicly anymore. The composer, understandably, became more reclusive, and his friendship circle shrank to nothing. It wasn't just his music that suffered. He found communication with others increasingly difficult, until it was just easier to remain isolated. Though he stopped performing, he was still a musician, and always would be. It was in his blood. It was a way of life, and all he knew how to do, so he continued to compose. Using his knowledge of music theory, his memories, and his own unique brand of creativity, Beethoven composed music that he himself would never hear. It's no surprise that his style changed drastically. What used to be light and playful became darker, heavier, and more contemplative. The piece of music called the Pastoral Symphony, or the Sixth Symphony, gives a fascinating peek into his mindset at this time. 
It's music that reflects the quietness of the countryside, a place where Beethoven had retreated in order to save his sanity. What Beethoven would prove to others is that music was a language, and that as long as he knew its syntax, he could create it, whether he had ears to hear it or not. Today, Beethoven is held as one of the Western world's greatest classical composers, and many of his most loved and recognizable pieces came from the darkest, most difficult period of his life. He was a man who showed that tragedy did not have to signal an end to creativity, to brilliance, or to strength. Even though Beethoven had to face each day knowing that another tiny little piece of his hearing would be lost, never to return, he continued to create. Even though he knew he would never again experience the joy of hearing his own masterpieces played live by an orchestra, he continued to create. Chapter 3 Thomas Carlyle and Writing the French Revolution It's never about how many times you fall, but how many times you get up. The story of the Scottish historian and author Thomas Carlyle is one that will surely motivate and inspire all those people who felt that they had to start all over again at square one in life. Have you ever spent time carefully crafting a text message only to backspace too aggressively and accidentally delete everything you've written? Well, this is broadly the story of Carlyle's life, multiplied by about a million. To tell the story of Carlyle, though, we need to tell a few of the stories that formed the historical background in which he was working. During the years of the French Revolution, and for some time afterwards, political, economic, and social upheaval was so intense, people must have believed they were in the end times. The heads of noblemen and women were chopped off, stuck onto pikes, and paraded around town by raucous mobs. There was a spirit of liberty, fraternity, and equality in the air, but also mass public violence, chaos, and disorder in the streets, and general mayhem the likes of which would shock even those of us who have lived through the last five years. Let's introduce a few key characters. Maximilien de Robespierre was a lawyer and statesman, and widely regarded as a key figure in the French Revolution, campaigning all his life for women's suffrage, the abolition of slavery, and the principles of democracy. His role as a public accuser led to him agitating for the fall of the French monarchy and, ultimately, to 40,000 people being sentenced to death by guillotine. His days were limited, though, and eventually Robespierre would die by the sword, so to speak. In the chaos that ensued after he was beheaded, General Napoleon Bonaparte appeared on the scene and gradually order was restored. The story that unfolded was one that inspired Charles Dickens to write A Tale of Two Cities, which is a novel that sheds light on the difficult, tragic, and sometimes horrific aspects of the Revolution. But Dickens himself was inspired by another great author, Thomas Carlyle. After reading Carlyle's historic trilogy on this incredibly complex episode in history, Dickens was moved to create his own contribution. Carlyle was born in 1795 and made his mark as a historian keenly interested in great men, i.e., 
those singular leaders around which significant historic events seem to organize. In his later treatise, On Heroes and Hero Worship and the Heroic in History, he outlined what would later be called the Great Man Theory. He was a well-regarded Victorian satirist, essayist, and teacher, and was renowned for a few controversial opinions in his time. He was notorious for a scathing and fearless style of political and social criticism, and he took his social role as a commentator and historian very seriously. The way Carlyle wrote about history had a dramatic effect on the way historians spoke about and documented the past. The impact of this shift is difficult to comprehend for those of us living in an ideological world he arguably helped to create. His study of leadership and the theory it produced arose from Carlyle's interest in Napoleon. Chapter 4. Thomas Edison, The Light Bulb, and the Power of Trying a Thousand Times. From the mists of antiquity to a more recent and probably more familiar story, we now explore the great Thomas Edison, who can certainly teach us about resilience, discipline, and finishing what you start. Most of us are at least somewhat acquainted with the story of Edison and his unfathomable determination, i.e., I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. It may not seem like it at first, but Edison shares quite a few characteristics with the other people on our list, like Ernest Shackleton. He was not a man to cave in and give up. Like Beethoven, he was flexible and committed to doing the work he knew in his heart was most valuable, and like Thomas Carlyle, he was not afraid of starting again. The anecdote is that Edison tried a thousand times before he finally figured out his most famous invention, the light bulb. Actually, the truth is more impressive. He tried 2,774 times. To be truthful, Edison did not actually invent the light bulb, but rather refined it and enabled its widespread commercial success. It was Humphrey Davy who first invented the electric arc lamp, and Warren Delarue who proposed the now recognizable design of a coiled filament inside a vacuum tube. Joseph Swan made the next upgrade by replacing expensive platinum filaments with carbonized paper ones and later cotton. The Canadian Woodward and Evans light was filed to be protected by patent in 1874, but in 1879, Edison bought out these patents and, along with a few tussles with other patent holders, eventually took over and became the household name associated with light bulbs. But Edison was an uncommon blend of businessmen and scientists, and he certainly made a significant contribution to the light bulb as we know it today. He got to work developing a filament that was formed from carbonized bamboo. This version could burn for 1,200 hours and be mass-produced, two factors that allowed Edison's version to dominate the market. Let's return to the near-mythical story of the thousand failures, though. It's hard to quantify exactly what counts as one failure, but Edison kept meticulous records and 2,774 is the number of experiments it took to reach the point of commercial success. As it turns out, the famous Edison quote is not quite true to life, and Edison is reported to have said something similar 
in relation to his work with the battery, not the light bulb. In the 1920 biography, His Life and Inventions, by Frank Dyer and T.C. Martin, Walter S. Mallory, a friend of Edison, is said to have told the following stories. This, the research, had been going on more than five months, seven days a week, when I was called down to the laboratory to see him, Edison. I found him at a bench about three feet wide and twelve feet long, on which there were hundreds of little test cells that had been made up by his corps of chemists and experimenters. I then learned that he had thus made over 9,000 experiments in trying to devise this new type of storage battery, but had not produced a single thing that promised to solve the question. In view of this immense amount of thought and labor, my sympathy got the better of my judgment, Then I said, Isn't it a shame that with the tremendous amount of work you've done, you haven't been able to get any results? Edison turned on me like a flat. Chapter 5 Colonel Sanders, A Delicious Story of Rejection Granted, you might not associate Kentucky Fried Chicken with discipline, dedication, and endurance, but these are exactly the qualities that allowed KFC's founding father, Colonel Harlan David Sanders, to create the fried chicken empire we all know and love. In many ways, Sanders was the Edison of fast food and one of the century's first prominent entrepreneurs. He was born in 1890 and died in 1980, and the phenomenal social, cultural, and economic changes associated with that long period were, in no small part, his own doing. First, let's clarify a few biographical details. The title of Colonel was a real honorific, but one peculiar to the Commonwealth of Kentucky. It's not a military rank but something awarded to civilians who have achieved noteworthy accomplishments or else contributed to society in a remarkable or outstanding way. So, interestingly, there are many Kentucky colonels, and each of them is recognized for their role as a kind of goodwill ambassador for the state of Kentucky, sharing its culture and traditions. That said, the title has gone to people from all walks of life, from celebrities, artists, business people, politicians, and even royalty who have no particular connection with Kentucky. Sanders didn't hit on his big idea from the start. Instead, he worked all kinds of jobs and was, at various points, an insurance salesman, farmer, lawyer, gas station operator, and steam engine stoker. He sold his first chicken at a diner in North Corbin, Kentucky, during the Great Depression, The secret recipe, combined with his technique of cooking chicken in a pressure fryer, created the classic fried chicken now familiar to so many. His first restaurant eventually closed, but he was beginning to wonder about the possibility of franchising his brand and scaling up. In 1952, the first officially named KFC restaurant was opened in South Salt Lake in Utah, and just 12 years later, His success in the U.S. was so phenomenal that he was able to sell the companies to investors for what today would be around $17 million. Sanders was by then 73 years old, but in no way ready to quit and become a kind of brand ambassador for the company. Sadly, towards the end of his life, Sanders was reported to be unhappy with the standard of food that had now come to be served at restaurants all over the world and claimed that cost-cutting had reduced the food's quality. Sanders died of leukemia at the age of 90. 
At that point, there were approximately 6,000 KFC branches in 48 countries all over the world, bringing in a combined $6.3 billion in sales annually every year. Today, the number of restaurants is a whopping 25,000 in 145 countries, which is more countries than McDonald's. So much for the official KFC story. But what about Sanders as a person? Who was he? And can we learn anything from him when it comes to resilience? It was in 1950 that Sanders was commissioned as a Kentucky colonel by then-Governor Lawrence Weatherby. This was quite a turning point for him. In no time, he began living out the stereotypical vision of a colonel. The image you see of Sanders on the KFC branding? That wasn't how he always looked. In fact, he had to work at it. And at first, people were not even sure if he was kidding or not. He grew a goatee, wore the quintessential white... Chapter 6. Galileo and the Bravery to Stand Alone Today, Galileo Galilei has become something of a secular martyr for science due to his moral stance in the face of persecution. But in his time, Galileo faced unthinkable condemnation and adversity. We've considered several inspiring achievements and the exemplary men behind them. But in this chapter, we'll take a look at a personal battle so epic it has arguably not been matched ever since. The story begins around 1609, when Italian polymath, i.e. master at physics, mathematics, astronomy, and engineering, Galileo Galilei became interested in special optical instruments and lenses that allowed for magnified vision. After hearing about some work done in Holland, he went to work creating his own rudimentary microscope that could magnify an image 30 times. He also used what he learned to create a telescope that allowed him to look far out into the heavens and observe the planets and stars. In time, Galileo made astonishing discoveries. He saw ridges and valleys on the surface of the moon and stars that were not visible to the naked eye. He realized that the Milky Way was actually comprised of stars, Jupiter had four moons, and he began to learn new and interesting things about the way the planets, including Earth, move through space. At this point in history, a few other scientists had made similar observations, but it was Galileo who was beginning to put the pieces together and see what all this data implied. At the time, using an instrument that allowed for observation beyond the limits of the human senses was groundbreaking enough, but Galileo's observations eventually led him to conclusions that would not only turn his life upside down, but completely rock the foundations that his world had been built on. By 1633, Galileo had been persecuted for his contributions to the theory of heliocentrism, i.e., the scientific model that places the sun at the center of the solar system with the other planets orbiting around it. But let's rewind to 1610, when, inspired by his observations and experiments, he was moved to publish a work called Siderius Nuncius, translated as Starry Messenger. In this work, he supported the 1543 work by astronomer Nicholas Copernicus, De Revolutionibus Orbium Coelestium. To understand what happened next, we need to appreciate that Galileo was not just making scientific claims. 
He was challenging the conception of what lay at the center of the universe, literally. This was an epic battle between religious dogma and the emerging discoveries of the growing science of astronomy. The Catholic Church held that the earth was at the center of creation, and according to scripture, if undermined, would seriously threaten their ideological dominance. Their geocentric worldview was not just about the position of heavenly bodies. It was a complex, all-encompassing vision of how the universe was put together and man's rightful place in it. When Galileo suggested that the earth was not the center of everything, he was saying so much more. He was asserting his moral rights as a scientist over the religious rulers of the day. He was directly challenging biblical scripture, and he was suggesting something even more frightening, that man was actually nothing special in the grand scheme of things, and that, in a complex universe, man was perhaps less significant than he would have liked. Chapter 7. The Battle of Zama. The Romans' Secret to Winning. We now turn our attention from musical genius, literature, and high adventure to the world of the Roman Empire. In fact, in the time our story takes place, Rome was not yet an empire, but a republic governed by consuls. At the time, Rome had fought several battles with Carthage, and in one noteworthy war, the Carthaginian general Hannibal advanced on the Romans, winning a series of important battles that racked up more than a 100,000 casualties. In the biggest and most notable of Punic War battles, the Battle of Cannae in 216 BC, Hannibal used a novel military strategy that impressed scholars and historians for decades afterwards. It's still regarded as one of the best military plays in history. Basically, Hannibal pretended to have a weak and undefended center, and when the Roman army took the bait, so to speak, Hannibal's troops wrapped around them on all sides and encircled them. The Romans responded as best they could, but were viciously defeated by Hannibal. But this story is not about Hannibal and his military accomplishments, which were many. It's not about his superior cunning in Cannae that day. Rather, this is a story about the losers of this war, the Romans. Their story is one that goes to show that being defeated is not the end. To skip to the end of the story, a few years later, in 202 BC, Hannibal was finally defeated by the Romans at the Battle of Zama in present-day Tunisia, led by Scipio Africanus the Elder. It took some time for them to make their comeback, but the Romans got their revenge, and in 146 BC, all of Carthage was destroyed. A hundred years after that, Rome would become a powerful empire, and their renewed vigor came in large part from their astounding retaliation after Cannae. So, how exactly did they come back from such defeat? To understand what was so important about the loss at Cannae and the battles that followed, and to see what this ancient military event could teach us about resilience, we need to understand what war was like in those days. Kings would typically take their armies to a battlefield and square off directly, one army against another. It was brutal. The troops would fight and the winner would take all after killing the opponent or forcing their surrender. It's like chess. The war is over when one team is checkmated. The bloodshed that unfolded at Cannae was something most people today cannot envision. The Carthaginians slaughtered the Romans, 
and the fields ran with their blood. Roman historian Titus Livius, or Livy, claimed that some were discovered lying there alive, with thighs and tendons slashed, bearing their necks and throats, and bidding their conquerors drain the remnant of their blood. Others were found with their heads buried in holes dug in the ground. They had apparently made these pits for themselves, and heaping dirt over their faces shut off their breath. For a Roman soldier, nothing mattered more than service to the Republic, honor to their families, and the courage to uphold the national Roman spirit. Defeat was so unthinkable that suicide was a preferable option. Around 50,000 to 70,000 Romans had been cut down this way, and thousands more were captured. It was a humiliating defeat that sent shockwaves through Rome. Despite the Romans having a larger army, Hannibal had prevailed with superior strategy and lost just six. Chapter 8. Alexander the Great and the Land Bridge to Tyre Island. Speaking of great men, our list wouldn't be complete unless we included a historical figure with great in his very name. The further back in history we go, the harder it is to find accurate, neutral, and detailed accounts of the personalities of great leaders, thinkers, or rulers. But we can certainly infer a lot by examining their choices and actions. Let's take a look at a story of Alexander the Great and a small city called Tyre that was founded in around 2750 B.C. The city was on an island, and on the mainland was another settlement called Ushu. Tyre was, from a strategic perspective, an important commercial seaport, and throughout ancient history it was invaded and controlled in turn by basically every European culture that surrounded it at the time. In 332 B.C., Alexander the Great, who was hell-bent on conquering nothing less than the entire world, set his eyes on Tyre. His historic campaign from Macedonia had already left a string of subjugated towns and villages in his wake. Then, he got to Tyre. This was a problem. How would he invade and subdue a city on an island? It was easy work to take the mainland city of Ushu, but he was stumped about how to manage Tyre. There was no question of moving on without occupying the island, since this would expose his armies to ambush from the rear as they advanced. Now, if you think that this story is going to be one in which we discover the impressive military and strategic skill of Alexander— You'd be wrong. This is a story about impressive engineering feats. Today, geological scientists and historians have worked hard to examine the area today. The city is now called Sour, and study the landscape to try recreating what it was that Alexander and his army were facing at the time. The scientists realized that in Alexander's time, there would have been, lying a few meters under sea level, the answer to their problem a narrow sandbar joining Tyre Island to the mainland. Over the course of seven long and hard months, Alexander's formidable war machine set out to create a path to the island on top of this sandbar. They piled up stone, timber, and whatever rubble they could find to raise the sandbar above sea level so it could be walked on. This would have been an astonishing 220 feet in width alone. Considering the technology available at the time, hint, basically nothing, 
This achievement was especially striking. As it happened, the sandbar plan wasn't the main reason that Alexander was eventually able to lay siege to the city and claim it. But the skills the army developed were used again later on, when the same tactic was employed to create a bridge from the Egyptian mainland to the island of Pharos. Most fascinating of all, though, is the longer-term impact this land bridge made on the landscape. The bridge they built acted as a barrier against which silt slowly accumulated until it created the 700,000 square feet of new land now in the area. Aerial photos show that Tyre Island is not much of an island anymore and is connected by a broad peninsula to the mainland. It's incredible to imagine that an army led by a single man was responsible for altering the very face of the earth. Alexander the Great only lived to 32 years of age and never did achieve world dominance. Chapter 9. Julius Caesar and the Battle of Alessia Let's turn our attention back to antiquity and explore the story of Julius Caesar and the Battle of Alessia. The event we'll look at is widely considered one of Caesar's most impressive military victories, but on its face, the odds appeared entirely against him at first. Though it is an extraordinary example of war strategy, we can also see in this story a powerful allegory for approaching difficulties in our lives. Let's set the scene. It's September in 52 BC, and the Gallic Wars are underway. The Gallic Wars were a series of campaigns led by Julius Caesar against the people in Gaul, which is a region now roughly around France and Belgium. Though historians mainly have Caesar's own account of the wars to go on, his book Commentarii de Bello Gallica, we do have other sources to help us confirm the casualty numbers and the series of events as they unfolded. One of the most noteworthy battles was in the small settlement of Alicia, the capital of Mandubii. The location of this town would be significant. It was perched high on a hill. Intending to seize the regions in Gaul for farmland, Caesar had been in the area since 58 BC, attempting to pacify the region and bring it under complete Roman control. Tribe after tribe was subjugated, often brutally, and the lands were ravaged. When he left the region, he ensured that no grain supplies would reach the survivors so they would starve. The Gauls united and rose up against Caesar, and the brave warrior Vincingetorix, king of the Averni, was an important leading figure who drew the scattered tribes together to defend themselves. In response to this, the Romans redoubled their efforts, and a wave of bloodshed and violence spread over the region for many years. Caesar had his work cut out for him in pursuing Vincingetorix, and the battles raged on with minor victories going to each side. Finally, however, Vercingetorix retreated the army to a small walled town on a hill, Alessia. Now, according to Caesar, the metrics of the battle that would ensue were as follows. On the Gauls' side, 80,000 men in Alessia and 100,000 to 250,000 men in relief army, all led by Vincingetorix and two other commanders who would join later, Commius and Vercassivlanus. On Rome's side, 60,000 med, led by Julius Caesar. 
It would appear that Caesar would be entering into a game that he had slim hope of winning. What was worse is that Alessia had a perfectly strategic location. Perched on a hill, surrounded by river valleys, it was ideally situated to defend itself against attackers. But Caesar made a decision that would transform this seeming disadvantage into an advantage. He could not defeat the enemy's army because they were so numerous and neatly encircled all in one place. On the other hand, how convenient would it be if the army was neatly encircled all in one place? All of Vincentatorix's army was within those walls. That could be seen as a problem, or it could be seen as an extremely lucky break. The goal, then, was not to attack from the front, where Vercingetorix's army would just pick off the Romans one by one. Rather, Caesar instructed his army to build a wall, like Alexander the Great's men at Tyre Island. Chapter 10. The Battle of Thermopylae. Have you seen the 2006 film 300 by director Zack Snyder? If you have, you already have some sense of the glory and epic scale of the Battle of Thermopylae, on which the movie was based. The film is over-the-top, to say the least, and the fantastical elements are dialed up to 11, showing the Greek Spartans, the heroes of the tale, as near godlike in their strength and bravery. If we're considering noteworthy historical battles that could teach us something true about the human spirit of discipline and resilience, then we surely can't leave out the Spartans and their victory at Thermopylae. The megawatt bravery and violence shown in the film seems unlikely, but just how much of it was really true? The story, or legend at this point, goes that just 300 Spartans battled against Persia's infinitely larger army. Estimates range from 100,000 to 2 million for three long days when they triumphed spectacularly and went down in history as ultra-warriors the likes of which the world had never seen. Today, historians can agree that there probably were just 300 Spartan men at Thermopylae, which, incidentally, is a name that translates to hot gates, since the sulfur springs there were, in myth, reported to be one of the gates to hell. What a fitting place for an epic battle to unfold. It's likely, though, that these 300 men were not alone, and were assisted by troops from other Greek states with whom they were in alliance, such as the Thebans and Thespians, bringing the real number closer to something like 7,000 men. What about the Persians? In the 5th century, Herodotus claimed that they numbered more than 2 million, but scholars think this is unlikely and estimate the number at around 300,000 maximum. So, even if the details of the battle itself were slightly exaggerated, we still have a conflict where one side was greatly outnumbered by the other. There would have been almost 43 Persians per single Spartan. Xerxes I of Persia had a formidable army, by all accounts, and was hell-bent on invading all of Greece and conquering it completely. King Leonidas in Sparta naturally had other ideas. The two faced off in Thermopylae, which, crucially, had a geography that heavily favored the Spartans. The area was essentially a narrow passage that meant Persia's advantage in number was greatly reduced. Both sides were armed and ready to fight. A messenger is said to have told a Spartan general, 
Our arrows will block out the sun. The general, unfazed, simply replied, Then we'll fight in the shade. For two long, hard days, Leonidas led his army to fend off the Persians, but the Persians must have realized at some point who they were up against. The Spartans took immense pride in their identities as warriors. Their military training was not just physically grueling and demanding, but they were mentally tough, too, knowing to their very bones that they would never, ever surrender or show even a splinter of weakness to the enemy. Basically, the Spartans would probably have been very flattered by their portrayal in Snyder's film. They fought hard, with the Persians continually demanding surrender. The Spartans refused. Somehow, they maintained their energy and managed to take their toll on the Persians, killing thousands of their men. They took the credo of do it or die trying to the next level. At one point, there was a traitor who told the Persian... Thanks for joining me for this episode of Voice Overwork, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Remember that you can join this author's mailing list at PeteHollins.com. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll be back in three or four days with our next preview.